ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We made it back. We're into the second week, 2024, on the minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host, as we try to negotiate the ethical dilemmas of modern life or something like that. Hey, Scott. Hey, Waleed. Are you feeling hopeful this week? <laughs> uh, so, second album blues, I'm worried about. <laughs> so we've got a, a difficult sophomore album. So we've really got to dig deep today, I think. Uh, I, I think there is actually a show in this about oh, truly I, great second albums that far eclipse the first. That's a good idea. Yeah. That would actually be a good podcast series. Wouldn't it? What I would like to know also is when was the last time I introduced a show and then you didn't respond with, we should do a show on that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, hey, hey, should, uh, before we get in, so, um, can I just indicate to the audience what's coming up? So if you're in Melbourne... And if you're one of those people that is not content just to listen to a podcast or listen to a radio show, but actually want to see the people make fools of themselves in person, uh, you have that opportunity on the 23rd of February, which is a Friday evening at the ABC studios in Melbourne. It's a free event. We've customized the topic and the guest to suit both the venue and the fact that people are going to be with us in the room. It's not just going to be us talking, it's going to be you talking. And if you want to have your opportunity to be on the air with the minefield, this could be a wonderful opportunity for you to come along to throw difficult questions at us and to have us throw difficult questions to you in turn. You do have to register though. There's a link to the Eventbrite page on the minefield's website. It's pretty straightforward. And what do we say? There are about two, 300 spots. Yeah, 253. how many there are left. So just get on there because they might not be gone by next week. Hey, between you and me, though, I mean, we're having it at the Q&A studio in Melbourne, which will be, I don't know, kind of interesting and fun. You know, bring a bit of good, wholesome minefield discussion rather than just sort of polarizing political argumentation. Does it encapsulate what you want to talk about today? The topic today... Last week we spoke about conspiracy-mindedness. This is a kind of twin topic, sister topic, I don't know, Mm. that's to do with a time or a culture of pervasive suspicion. Mm. And I wonder if your objections to Q&A have to do with that. That I'm ventriloquizing you here, so tell me if I'm wrong. Mm. But your objections have tended to be that it is not a place of persuasion, of listening, of back and forth, but it is a place of cheerleading and sort of declaratory. I want to avoid the phrase virtue signaling, but you no, know what I mean. no, but it's rather appealing to the side of the already convinced. Yeah. Okay. It, does that relate to a time or a culture of pervasive suspicion? In other words, is that, and to move away from Q&A specifically, it's like more as a microcosm of a broader phenomenon. Is that what happens when you have thoroughgoing suspicion of those who are not in your tribe and the exact opposite of that, of those who are in your tribe? Hmm. Look, I, I think so. What I've always taken, let's just move away from, from Q&A. I mean, what shows like that really are, are the byproduct of, let's call it a culture of op-ed writing, where what op-eds essentially do, um, not all op-eds, 
some, some of the more popular ones, maybe some of the more democratically unproductive ones, is that they take the terms of a particular conversation and they ratchet it up with a certain degree of moral seriousness. Now, whether that's, you know, I mean, it's trying to say that there are stakes in this particular debate, that there are things that hang upon it, but also that make disagreement seem not just ill-considered or that you haven't considered all of the evidence, but rather that disagreement is symptom of a kind of ideological loading, uh, that it wasn't reason that brought you to that position, it's interest and it's ideology. Now, this is where I think democratic deliberation, when it begins to crumble, this is what we tend towards. Democracies survive when a loss isn't permanent. Democracies are able to continue when the conditions of the common life of a people aren't undermined by another side winning, but rather when we relent, we consent even to ourselves, our side, our particular political persuasion, our vision of the life of the nation, our vision of justice, being entrusted to the hands of people with whom we fundamentally disagree. And if that element of entrusting the life of our nation and our fate to the hands of another, to other people with whom we might seriously disagree, not just, you know, they're not quite there. We might think that their vision of justice is positively unjust. If we can't entrust ourselves, the fate of our nation, the well-being of a political community to the other side, and simply rally our forces and come together for the next time around, then it means that each election, each political debate is something that borders on existential. Something will be irrevocably lost if our side doesn't get up. Um, which means that for any democratic community to retain the requisite degree of health, there needs to be enough... Now, these are the terms that we've discussed in the past. There needs to be the proper degree of civility. Civility as, if you like, the virtue that is inherent to democratic citizenship the commitment, the dedication to treating one another as participants within a shared political project, not as rivals, not as threats. So I think one of the ways in which we serve our democratic conditions well is by conducting political debates in a manner that truly is aimed at persuasion, that doesn't just rally one side around a particular standard, that doesn't engage in forms of rhetoric that might whip people up into a certain degree of, say, democratic zeal uh, around a capital C cause, but rather properly attends to the fact that there is always time within the conditions of our democratic life. There is always time to find a just means of living together, of struggling together for common purpose. There is always the proper amount of patience that is required to, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., there is always time to do what is right. And one of the things that is invariably right within the conditions of democratic life is to attend properly to those with whom we vehemently disagree. Yeah, that requires a set of assumptions, though, about their motives and the fact that they are behaving in good faith. That's true. So that's the bit that falls over, right? Yeah, that's true. It seems to me, and this is, I guess, the continuity with the epistemic points of last week, 
It seems to me that if our epistemology is fracturing as a society so that it's becoming increasingly difficult to say we are looking at the same facts or indeed we agree that the same set of facts exists, then we increasingly sort ourselves into parcels that Hmm. mean that, well, this is really the only possible or at least only reasonable interpretation of events. And therefore anyone who departs from that must be acting in bad faith. Like there's no there's no other available explanation, right? Mm. Or they must be in hoc to outside influence or to yeah, ideological well, interests. Or... It's a version of bad faith. That's right. right, yeah. Okay, so the bit I don't know is how that's overcome. Mm. Short of like old-fashioned things like gathering people in a town hall or forcing them in a room to share tea and biscuits and actually have to look in the whites of each other's eyes, there's something of an irresistible or an unstoppable force here about this. Now, I know you wanted to start the year on an optimistic note, so I'm going to hand it over to you to, to tell me how that can be stopped because I don't see it. it it's like a, it feels a bit like a perpetual motion machine to hmm. me. It's got its own momentum and a momentum that exists beyond agency. Yeah, look, I think that's probably right. Let me just mention here what I regard as one of the greatest political essays written in the last, say, two decades – uh, I mentioned one last week, Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style of American Politics. Another is an essay by Jill Lepore, the historian. It's a piece that she did 2022, 2023, I beg your pardon, in The New Yorker called The American Beast. Uh, she essentially writes a book review of the report of the January 6th committee. It's quite an extraordinary piece in which she finds fault with that particular report, and not so much in its substance, but in its style. And what she points out is, is it any wonder that as people limped to the end of 2020, when they spent so much of that year online and separated from one another, quite literally unable to look at one another in the whites of their eyes, is it any wonder when we spent so much of our lives online and through that process, we became little more than avatars to one another, placeholders of ideological positions, sources of, okay, in physical form of the spread of a contagion and online sources of conspiracy, of online contagion? Is it any wonder that as the nation limped towards the end of 2020, that they were fish in a barrel, that they were sitting ducks for the big lie? for suspicion, when the system is rigged, has been part of American political rhetoric for decades and decades and decades. Is it any wonder they got to the end of the year and not having the nourishing effect of real human contact, that they were able to look on the other side of the political divide and see not fellow strugglers within a common political project, but rather enemies that are trying to take away the very conditions of our national way of life. I found that quite remarkable, I'll confess. It's something that you and I have discussed before, that the fact that so much of our discussion, our conversation, our deliberation is digitally mediated, we have effectively reduced ourselves to being avatars to one another. Therefore, not people who can deliberate in good faith, but rather people who uh, effectively hold or occupy or fill in for particular ideological positions, who therefore can't be persuaded because we just don't believe that persuasion works anymore. We think that ideology and interests are too overwhelming, or we think that there's something fundamentally deficient uh, about the people with whom we disagree, that they cannot move off their position. 
And this is why, Walid, I, I really take seriously the point that you raised before, that if we don't believe in people's words, if we don't believe that people are engaging in good faith, that people are telling us the truth in what they say, that that fundamentally undermines the possibility of trust. I mentioned last week in our little, you know, vignette about footnotes that there was, I think, one of the greatest sentences ever written within the history of moral philosophy that appears in a little footnote. You know? Oh, are you going to read it out? I'm going to read it out. All right. It's from the moral philosopher uh, Cicela Bock. It's in her book, Lying. She says, whatever matters to human beings, whatever matters to human beings, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. I think there are two really remarkable ways of understanding that. One is that trust is the condition of possibility of our common life. If we don't believe one another, then we can't believe one another's professions of their uh, words as they are or the motivations that underlie them. We can't believe when they say that, that they have our best interests at heart. We can't believe when they say uh, that they're not trying to take away things of value. So, on the one hand, the statement means that trust becomes the condition of possibility of our ability to engage with one another. If we don't trust one another's words, then nothing else is really, uh, really has any kind of foundation or basis. But I think there's also another way. She probably did, didn't intend it, but this is one of the ways that I like reading it. That trust becomes the litmus test of what is really of greatest value. In other words, you ask, what is it that emerges from trust? What is it that emerges from trust? And you can see this is what matters most in our common life. So being able to take one's words as being, yes, maybe an errant, but nonetheless is something like an authentic expression of a self that is trying, that is trying, that is trying to make sense of the world, that is trying to to protect a certain value, that's trying to understand, that's trying to see its way towards a just or a proper conclusion. Uh, engaging with someone's words, not with this disbelief about the motive behind them, but seeing the words as the only way in which we can really morally engage with another person. You can't address someone's motives apart from the way in which those motives are given expression. If you think about trust as that which preserves what is of greatest value, our ability to speak together, to deliberate, and then cooperate together, to act together for common purpose, then you realize that in an atmosphere that is as fragile as a democratic political community, everything depends on trust. And when you give yourself too quickly to pervasive mistrust, Yes, there may be certain democratic virtues that are being appealed to, like scrutiny, like a healthy degree of cynicism, like the need for oversight, like the fact that power is never inherent, but it can be given and it can be taken away. Yes, those are all democratic virtues. But too much mistrust, too much regarding of another person as a threat, as someone who does not have my interest at heart, who is threatening to bring down that which I hold dear, too much of that and too little concern about cultivating the conditions within which trust can be built, trust can be grown. Too much of that, I think, loses too much of what is most precious in democratic life, which means that giving ourselves over to mistrust as if it were a virtue in and of itself, I think is conceding way too much. Two things. Cecilia Box should have put that in the body of the text. I agree. Secondly, and, and in fact, the book is worth that one sentence. It's, it's a remarkable <laughs> book, but that one sentence, I think, is a masterpiece. Um, but people do lie. 
Yes, they do. People do manipulate. People do act in bad faith. I think part of what might be happening here, yes, there's the epistemic fracture stuff, all that I agree with and argue for relentlessly or about relentlessly. But I think there's a broader fear, actually, that if you behave as though everyone else is acting in bad faith, sorry, acting in good faith. Mm -hmm. And they're not. And the only (laughs) thing that happens is that the people who are acting in bad faith win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what to do with that? Because the problem I have with that argument is I can't for sure say that that's incorrect. I might be able to, and I think I would be prepared to, mount a grander moral argument that is to say, well, if that's the price of acting in a morally correct way, then that's the price. I'd rather be the person being taken advantage of than the person doing the taking advantage of. You'd rather be a dupe than a cynic. Yeah, for moral reasons. Mm. But I'm pretty confident that were I to mount that argument, it wouldn't go very far in the face of anyone who's making it, making the opposite claim. And so I wonder, is this, I don't know, is is this a contradiction at the heart of democracy that ultimately can't be overcome? It relies on trust. It relies on us taking each other on good faith. It relies on that deliberation. But actually, it's wrongheaded and naive to engage in it in that way because you will simply hand it over to those who don't. Uh, I think you've skipped a step, and that is democracy also relies on risk-taking. By whom? By everyone. As soon as you you accept the results of an election, you're taking a risk. As soon as you... This is is the point about the bad faith victory, is they're not taking the risk. Mm. So the risk taking is just another one of the things to throw in your basket of democratic virtues that is, for pragmatic reasons, best swept aside, right? Look... I, I think you're right that there is a paradox, that there is a kind of contradiction at the heart of democracy. In fact, there are multiple, that it breeds mistrust and yet that it relies almost entirely on the thinnest of fabrics upon which sort of interpersonal trust, reliance, um, placing ourselves in one another's hands, placing ourselves in the future of our political community in the hands of people whose vision we might vehemently disagree with. These are all sort of contradictions at the heart of democracy. One of the greatest, of course, is that the people, just to go back to some of the language you used last week, the people who provide the foundation of legitimacy of democratic life may well themselves advocate a vision of our common life that is fundamentally undemocratic because they are willing to sacrifice the conditions of that democratic political community for the sake of a greater cause. It might be the integrity or the strength of a nation, for instance. In that sort of scenario, in in other words, the paradox is the democratic support for undemocratic political belonging. Um, In those sorts of circumstances, the only solutions are, I mean, you know, there are multiple solutions, hopefully. One is the existence of certain democratic institutions that keep us together in place, that keep us within a common and a sufficiently just community, that those undemocratic 
tendencies or presumptions or ideologies can be overcome in time. But unless you want to resort to other forms of undemocratic behavior like political violence, then in that particular scenario, there, what is required is a sufficient love for the conditions of that political community, the possibility of them going along together, that you are willing to stay together in the hopes that through political belonging, through working together, deliberating together, cooperating together, those undemocratic presumptions can themselves be overcome and something properly just, properly democratic can then emerge in their place. That's what I mean by, by the risk-taking that's required. But are you uh, asserting that democracy has that self-correcting capacity? Because unless you are, the argument that bad faith winners will win is undisturbed. Mm. It's a bit like the argument that you... Uh, what's an example? That conventional militaries use in justifying their breaches of the Geneva Convention or international law or whatever mm. in pursuit of terrorists. They don't play by the rules, so why should we? Or why should we be at a disadvantage when we do that? Mm. And the thing about that argument is you can only really beat that argument with a call to a higher principle. That's right. It's very hard to beat it on pragmatic ground. I mean, you could, you could in that particular case because there's all sorts of nuances in the way war and conflict works. But you get my point, right? Well, I mean, what, I, what you would have to say is that not only is winning not a democratic virtue, but you would also say that there are ways of pursuing ends that render those ends unjust, immoral in the very means that we have used to pursue them. Yep, yeah, but we're getting unjust ends anyway. So I may as well get good ones. No, really. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be facetious. Like you no, know, that I know these are, this is not a position I would take. But I think it's important to reckon with it because I think that's actually the position. I think it goes twofold. I think that people would say, I am acting in good faith. I'm just telling the truth. But in the alternative, Your Honour, if you find that I'm not acting in good faith, I'm driven by necessity because I'm playing a game by the rules which the other side has set. And that could be because the other side is playing by rules written by the Murdoch press or by the liberal elites or by social media algorithms or by big business and corporate donors or, I mean, you fill in the blanks. You know how to play this game. Mm -hmm. I just don't know how, how to beat that argument. I know how to object to it but I don't know how to beat it. I think we should bring in a guest. All right. Our guest is a thinker, a writer, who has meant a tremendous amount to me. This is his second appearance on the show, and it's a tremendous honor that he's joining us again. Jedediah Purdy is the Raphael Lemkin Distinguished Professor of Law at Duke University. He's the author of a number of remarkable books, the most recent of which is Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. Perhaps even more importantly, though, he's the editor of a new critical edition of the writings of Henry David Thoreau, who I suspect might come up a little bit in this portion of the conversation. Jed, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Scott and Waleed, thanks a lot for having me on. I've been listening carefully to your exchange and getting more and more vexed and disheartened. Um, (laughs) Because I do agree, Waleed, that once this 
argument, as you put it, but it's not only an argument, but let's say once this political option and even existential option, right? It's like a path you can take in politics, but also a path you can take as a person in your kind of orientation to others and to the world. Once it is fully alive and in play, and once you really, truly think that odds on the other side, whoever they are, is likely to to take it, then it is actually very difficult to find our way back. I've, I've been thinking through the kind of recurrent theme of your exchange in which you've said, well, how do you break the B-R-A-K-E? How do you stop the self-accelerating dynamic of mistrust and kind of extreme and, let's say, norm-breaking or rule-breaking tactics where power becomes its own end in a sense, not because you want power only, but because you know you're right and you know the other side is wrong. In a way, once the question can be posed in that way, and not only as a sort of seminar-style philosophical option, but as a real live political option, then we're in a lot of trouble because it's it, it's not actually, I think, straightforwardly possible to appeal effectively. Well, Lita, I think this is your point, to appeal effectively to a higher principle, qua higher principle. If it, if it were, we wouldn't, in a sense, be here and having this, this problem in the first place. What you need ultimately, and this is part of what's really scary about democracy, is you need living mobilized majority to affirm that it wants to do democracy in the right way, in an authentic way. And if it doesn't and won't or doesn't think it can do it with these people on the other side, then I don't I'm not sure that there's a way out of it that's that's built in to the system. And I'll I'll just add I don't think it's something like, neither of you quite said this. Well, you didn't put it this way, and, and you may not, maybe you wouldn't put it this way. But a person listening to the conversation could have thought, while well, they're saying that it's in some ways just thinking through the sort of rational dynamics of politics and the strategic citizens within it that leads us to this very bleak conclusion. And I think it's not just that. When we say that this process of sort of mutual intensifying suspicion has its own dynamic, is its own engine, we're not talking about something as um, as universally true as a principle of mechanics or physics. See, I think we're talking about a very specific sort of political, psychological dynamic in which the sense of resentment and the sense of threat are not only turned loose, but they're kind of very deliberately and actively intensified because they are found to be effective at mobilizing voters, even more effective at keeping eyeballs on pages. They can be commodified in a sense. I think the brilliance of social media actually following in some ways on um, somewhat different models for previous partisan media has been to commodify 
um, fear and resentment and the sense of righteousness, because it turns out that actually people will consistently pay for those in little doses, pay with their attention, if nothing else. And attention, of course, is very valuable in this economy. All of this is is sort of pointing toward last kind of phrase phrasing of the observation that I would put in this way. I think in the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith says something kind of against type. People think he's conciliatory and optimistic, generally speaking. He says there, however, that we care more about whether other people share our resentments than we do about whether they share our affections. And I don't think that's true at all times, in all places. Mm -hmm. But once it becomes true, we are in a difficult spot. And we have been in some ways working intensely, or at least we have been working within communication and political practices and structures that have worked intensely to make that true as a practical matter. And I think once that's true, all the rest of these these dilemmas that you're exploring are set in motion. So here we are. It's so interesting what you say there, Jedediah, because it, it actually reminded me immediately of a show I'd almost completely forgotten about that we did, which was about the difficulty we have now in affirmation. That's right. So so we don't really have a culture, politically or otherwise, of affirming. We have a culture of deconstructing and of critiquing. And the only culture we have of affirming, and I may have made this point in that show, it wouldn't surprise me if I did, seems to come from, in a debauched fashion, from the sort of like the populist right end of politics in the form of affirming the nation or affirming some aspect of the nation and it could be tinged with um, racial dimensions or religious dimensions or whatever. So you get affirmation in that sort of element of politics. It's not a rich affirmation. It's not an affirmation that fulfills the soul or anything like that. It's it's not an affirmation that's deeply cultural or anything like that. It's It's almost an affective affirmation. But it's telling, isn't it, that that's about all we have. And if that's the case, that makes that quote that you gave us just so vividly real and vividly true all of a sudden, isn't it? That we actually care more about mm-hmm. shared resentment than we care about mm-hmm. shared affection. Because Once you a, know who we, someone's enemy is, you, then you know whether they're your friend. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, please do, because I, I, I want you to take the button. No, it's it's just to spell out the logic of, of what you're saying. Once... In a sense, what you're affirming is that you and the people you're standing with are denouncing the same people. Once you know who someone's enemy is, then you know that they're your friend, which is all backward in a way. So here's something I found myself thinking as you were talking before. Scott, you said that, and I agree, there needs to be for this thing to work, this democracy to work. A premise, I'm slightly mangling what you said, of love for the enterprise of democratic effort. And I found myself thinking this, that love doesn't need to be, you didn't suggest it did, but a listener could could easily think in this culture that we live in, that this is a kind of soft, sentimental appeal. Mm. We just need to have some more nice feelings. But I think... That love can actually be quite a rational attachment. That makes a difference because if we can do things together 
politically, then we can do things together that we can't otherwise do at all. You know, we can, to take some obvious examples, we can grapple with climate emergencies. We can reckon with the movement of peoples in an age of migration when countries and nations are going to have to wrestle with their identities. We can engage a time of tremendous economic inequality and people struggling and suffering in quite unnecessary and terrible ways in a time that's wealthy enough that that need not be true. We can actually do things about all of this and more and do things with this, but not if we can't act together. So to have the kind of attachment to the practice of politics that we could call a love, identifying with it, saying in some sense, I care more whether this practice goes on than whether I win this time, is not soft or sentimental attachment. It's, I think, an attachment to a very strong and significant power, which if we lose it, weakens us enormously. I think one of the kind of saddening paradoxes in all of this is that denunciation and cynicism feel like forms of personal empowerment, but they're the empowerment, the isolated empowerment of the radically disempowered. Hmm. They are sort of what's left after the surrender of the capacity to do something bigger together. And they tend, in the in the ways that we're talking about them, the registers that we're talking about, to corrode and block the possibility of doing things together. And as you keep emphasizing, that together doesn't need to be. It can't be just nice or consensual. It has to be in the face of deep, persistent disagreement of, you know, of justified partial mistrust of thinking, oh man, we have to do it with with you, with these people, and yet going on and doing it, which is actually much, much stronger a position than like like it takes more from a person to find a way to do that than to say, not 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 you, this can't work. Look, Jed, I think that's beautifully put. I mean, one of the things that people accused Waleed and I of when we did our quarterly essay on contempt in democratic politics a year and a bit back is that we were kind of sentimentalizing democratic citizenship. We were calling people to love one another. In fact, we never did any such thing. The love that we properly display, the love that we call for is the love of the conditions of our common life and the desire that this goes on, even if it includes, mm-hmm. not just even if it includes, especially if it includes our enemies, because there is something, there is a kind of ineradicable preciousness about their presence within our common life. And even if we lose at a particular election, the the period when we are governed by them, as George Cateb once beautifully put it, that affords us the opportunity to see the world through their particular mm-hmm. valence, through their through the coloration of their side of politics. And while it might be distasteful in in some respects, it's not going to be distasteful in all respects. And I think this, for me, goes back to a fundamental understanding about what politics is. It, It strikes me, it worries me, that we've understood political rhetoric in an overly moralized sense. And one of the real problems, I think, of the last two decades is that 
Now, I'm not an amoralist or an immoralist. I think politics, democratic politics, has a form of morality that is inherent to it, that is appropriate to it, but it's not a standard form of morality. It's not the form of morality that, say, governs the relationships between, between individuals or members of a family, for instance, or even the connection, to some extent, the connection between friends. But the, the moralization of political rhetoric, and let's call it the apocalypticism, of so much political pronouncements. What happens if this side wins? What happens if we lose the upcoming whatever? What happens if this Supreme Court judge uh, is passed by the Senate and so on? Um, So much of that has, I think, debased or corrupted what is really essential about the nature of democratic political deliberation. Democratic politics, politics as such, is not simply about power. It's not simply even about the pursuit of particular ends. It's not even about the organization of a life together, but rather I've always been drawn to the kind of pastoral vision that to some extent Plato suggested, certainly Aristotle, Jean-Jacques Rousseau drew on this, uh, Hannah Arendt gestures in this direction, Henry David Thoreau certainly appeals to it, even Simone Weil, that politics is essentially a pastoral activity. The role of politics is to tend, to, t- to cultivate the conditions of our common life within which things can grow that we can then gather around together and work towards the common end of achieving, of multiplying, and so on. So that when Thoreau, for instance, escapes what he regards as the debauched political community of Concord, Massachusetts, with its corrupted forms of pursuit and of money-making, its superficial and shallow forms of mutual address and labor. And he withdraws to isolation to establish a new community, if you like, uh, where other forms of activity can be nurtured, where new forms of first friendship and then society can be cultivated and grown, where new forms of language, hopefully, can be cultivated. Um, There's something in that There's something about that withdrawal from the way that we understand politics as usual with its moralistic form of rhetoric, with its superficial forms of exchange, with its zero-sum games, with its all-or-nothing debates. There's something that seems to me about the necessity of the withdrawal from that particular way of doing politics and the rediscovery, even if this means withdrawing ourselves not so much from civic life or society or from pluralistic forms of friendship, but rather withdrawal from the presumption that this is simply the way that politics is, that this is the way that simply politics must be done. And the cultivation, if you like, of new ways of seeing one another, of new forms of, say, looking past political differences and finding forms of renewed cooperation around local ends in common. I'm just, I'm just wondering, as someone who's so concerned about democratic politics and has also done this remarkable work on Thoreau, I know you are against withdrawal from society, withdrawal from civic life and into a form of, if you like, moralized quietism. But surely there is a kind of practice of withdrawal from our habits of mistrust and debased moralism and the politics of zero-sum yeah. games. Surely there is something there that is calling out to us if, if we have any chance at all of rehabilitating those necessary habits of trust, of love for our common life, and of risk-taking. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things Thoreau says is happening in Concord is not just that people are 
self-concerned and selfish and narrow, but that they are always moralizing, actually, and that they're always making claims on you, trying to lay hands on you and insist that you feel and turn your kind of affections and your commitments in just the way that they say you must. He, he has some controversial lines about philanthropy. The part of what he's getting at there is people are always telling you where the imperative is right now and what you need to care about. And my first response, he says, is something like, I'm paraphrasing, first get your hands off my soul. So I do think that, just kind of continuing in the spirit of Thoreau, if you were to let yourself be drawn unreservedly into the currents of our politics, and especially our online politics, you would find every minute of the day, someone is making a claim on you. And what they're saying is, you must denounce this. You must be outraged by this. You must go stand against this right now. And it is always a question of absolute moral imperative, frequently presented as a question of life or death, as you say, uh, an apocalyptic question. And one has to refuse, I think, to become just a vehicle for that, because it's exhausting, it's destroying in a way. And you, you've laid out together in this conversation why and what dynamics it participates in. So there has to be some other, some resting place, some place of renewal, some place of experimentation, some other kind of relationship, other way of encountering people that is coming back into political life. It's the exhaustion of those, and especially the exhaustion of those in spaces where people meet across parties, across classes, across prejudice, that's been among the kind of conditions in which, in which this politics has arisen. You said, I think, Scott, it was you, that in a proper democratic ethos, there is always time and I think what our apocalyptic politics and moralized politics is telling us is that there's never time. Hmm. We're always out of time. We always have to act now. It's always the, it's always the end. Everything is always at stake. Um, part of the difficulty is that we have to hold in mind both the fact that that's a destructive and corrosive form of political sentiment, imagination, a way of feeling and doing politics, and also that it's true that we're running out of time mm -hmm. in a way, right? That, that we're facing, we're in the middle of multiple crises. And the, our politics really is about life and death, life and death at borders, life and death for people within, etc. It's, it's true, and it's also somehow dangerous when it comes to the center of, of our politics in a way that's out of balance. You know, another formulation Joe Lepore has given recently is that in American politics, so much has come to be seen as freedom for one and death for the other. Um, for Democrats, abortion is freedom, and for Republicans, it's death. For Republicans, guns are freedom, and for Democrats, they're death. And I think that this logic sort of generalizes in some ways. Um, there's always someone who's willing to say their life is at stake in a given kind of politics or the country's life is at stake. And in some sense, people feel that's true. And sometimes in some sense, it is true. 
And in another sense, when everything is freedom against death, we're not going to move forward. So how do how we step back from this without, as you said, entering into quietism, without just accepting that we're giving up on doing justice to these claims? I don't think we know the answer, but I think we know that what, what you said, that we need to find ways to cultivate and bring into politics other resources of seeing of meeting one another, of knowing one another, and other ways of conceiving of the political enterprise itself so that we remember that it is properly a way of doing things and not just a sort of uh, moralized blood sport whose nature is zero-sum. We've got to develop those resources or else the logic of this thing really will be self-perpetuating. It's one of the reasons I really love the persistent existence of the caucus in American primaries. Mm. It's such an odd thing. I I still have to confess as an Australian, I still don't really know what it is. I mean, I've read descriptions of it. I have no sense of what it would be like in the room. It seems a very imprecise sort of a thing, but I love it because caucusing is what we don't do, right? I mean, the only thing is that's within a party. We have precious few forums for anything like that. In a, not a, I was going to say in a cross-partisan way, but actually just beyond parties, like, you know, just on various issues or, or matters of concern. And I suppose the thing is, I, I'm not sure how to retrieve it. Like when I was listening to you there, in some ways I came back to the point I was making before, which is like, it's not just about how do we find ways to back away from the freedom versus death binary, but how do you back away from that without being washed away in a democratic contest. It doesn't seem to me, I can't think of too many examples in living memory where people have prevailed in their argument in a democratic context by making it more modest, by making the stakes lower, by saying, hey, this may not matter as much as that, but could you listen to me anyway? (laughs) Like, it doesn't seem a very useful rhetorical move, certainly not in this age, can you foresee circumstances or developments that might make that somehow more persuasive, more powerful? Hmm. I think in a funny way, actually, that a lot of the, how do I want to, to put this? There was a lot of feeling in the U S in the 1990s and even a part of the aughts that the stakes of politics were not that high. And yet, I can't believe in a way that I'm saying this because I, I, I think that in some ways the roots of our troubles lie in that time. And at, at the time, I was quite critical of the flippancy and I think superficiality of our sense of politics. But then you didn't actually win by turning up the heat. You won in a way by keeping it relatively cool. That was true of both the Clinton terms in the U.S. In a funny way, although Obama was a candidate of of tremendous charisma, he was also a candidate of political pool whose real political promise was, and I think his, his genuine goal, I think the kind of stance that he inhabited coming into the, into the first campaign in the White House the first time was of lowering the temperature and of finding commonality and of 
doing things, doing yeah, things. the United States. Um, he was the healing yeah, bomb in the post-Bush yeah, era. All of that, all of that. Um, and wow, the way things went, in fact, Waleed looked like an example of your picture of the dupe getting rolled, at mm. least in some ways, when he approached the Republicans with open hands. But the Republicans had been cultivating that form of power politics for about 14 years at, at that point. And I think in some ways he just he just didn't see that. But I'm sorry, we're getting into kind of historical minutiae here, maybe. I, this is to say, though, that I don't, I don't think people always want the temperature to be turned up. But it's very hard to see, actually, how you turn it down once it is once it's up as high as it is now. I'm not, um, yeah, no I'm one wants it to knew, be up. If we knew, the, yeah. yeah. Right, everyone, everyone wants it to be down. Want everyone they, wants they do it. it. <laughs> but then they do it, yeah. And they read it. How do we get out of that? And, and yeah, they keep, yeah, moths, like we're like moths to a flame. Yeah, it's like, you can say you don't like cocaine, but if you're addicted, you're addicted, right? Well, see, here we are in, I think, very interesting territory, which is that what Obama did have going for him was his ability to appeal to capital H history. And you could say that if you go back to, say, Alexis de Tocqueville's vision of what the media could do, the media could shine a light on a common cause, something that is of shared value and concern. And because we're all equals and because we don't know one another, because we, don't, we aren't ranked in terms of class and caste, we need a popular press to shed light, to point in the direction of a common cause. And then because we're all concerned about that cause, because we all want to work at it together, we're drawn together. And while we come to know one another in the process, there's kind of, there's an epistemological necessity in being directed, yes, this is worth pursuing mm -hmm. together. And then you have the perversion that was introduced in the press wars of the late 19th century, early 20th century, where suddenly there was great money to be made, not so much in directing people towards a common cause, but rather directing people towards a common enemy. And by by buying the paper, you aren't just a reader, you are an activist, you are a militant, you are taking your part in a common march towards a common goal. Whatever it is, it's got a capital letter. I think surely one of the things that needs to be recovered in our democratic politics is an end to those capital letter shared causes, if you like, an end to our various forms of vertical devotion whether it be devotion to nation or devotion to capital H history, and instead something like a recovery in the sense of the necessity of the value of our various forms of horizontal value, that by preserving those bonds of community, by discovering things about one another we simply didn't know through the achievement of some local or proximate good, we discover something of immense value, something that is genuinely worthy of love and that cultivates those forms of shared affection. In other words, what we want is, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, we want to go a little bit further down the path of political liberalism and the renunciation of those various forms of transcendental goals and claims and the discovery that there is great good to be found and there's tremendous love to be discovered through the proper pursuit by means of the proper means. Well, one way to motivate in a real way, the cooling down and, and redirection and maybe repowering of a less deranged form of politics is the genuine felt recognition that the politics you're 
living through and participating in presents a threat to things that you concretely cherish hmm. places relationships relationships across lines of party maybe maybe relationships across lines of class you know maybe the kinds of relationships that have become in the US often so much harder to have in the Trump era and you you used the metaphor of addiction Walid and perhaps there is a kind of sobering crisis in realizing oh this is this is not just a game this form of emotional rhetorical workout is actually breaking things and breaking things that i care about i don't think that's enough it's a sort of protective aversive response but it might at least in scott in line with what you were saying redirect our attention to the place where we do actually cultivate the we cultivate attachments that keep us anchored and make very concrete why the larger scale of stakes also uh, matters it's, there's something about the scope of the capital stakes that gets overheated and as you say turns turns others into avatars very quickly i do think there is something about the concrete and particular as the kind of mm, sustaining locus of attachment that it may its heat conductivity maybe maybe a little lower um Jedediah, we're indebted to you because i know there's virus ravaging your house and everybody's sick and it's been a battle for you to get through this but you've done it with such great aplomb it's always great to have you on the show uh, feel free to come back anytime you like. Just give us a call and say I'll pop in today, fellas, and oh. uh, we'll just we'll just throw you on. Uh, that'll be good. Um, it's it's re it's really nice to talk to you both. It's really nice to listen to you both. I could have listened to you for another hour. Well, you can do that too. You can just log on and listen. <laughs> yes, I will. I'll keep doing that. That's right. That's up to you. Um, but until next time, we really really appreciate it. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank That's, you both. Uh, Jedediah Purdy, Raphael Lemkin, Distinguished Professor of Law at Duke University, author of Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope, which is a fair summation of I think, the discussion we just had. Uh, that's it for The Minefield this week. We'll see you next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.